I'm Chip Granditz. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 28, 2019. Coming up, we'll hear from KGNU's Maeve Conran interviewing Antonia Melchik on her book, A Walking Life, Reclaiming Our Health and Freedom One Step at a Time. Her book examines the relationship between walking and humanity. The discussion includes an interesting discursion into what science has to say about what it actually takes for a person to be able to walk. Then we hear from Boulder climate scientist Dr. Detlev Helmig. He talks about the Mosaic Expedition, the largest Arctic ice research expedition ever, centered around a full year-long voyage of an icebreaker headed right into the heart of the Arctic. This first piece is especially for those who love a good walk. Antonia Melchik has written a book, A Walking Life. It explores the relationship between walking and humanity, how it relates to our health, creativity, and communities, and how that relationship has suffered over the last century of car-centric design. Walking for the pedestrian? Well, it's as simple as putting one foot in front of the other. But from a scientific perspective, well, there's quite a bit more to it. Let's join KGNU's Maeve Conran and author Antonia Melchik. The science of walking is fascinating. And it seems that we have a whole group of ready-made subjects there in terms of infants who are learning how to walk. And yet I was surprised to read that there's been quite a few few studies done. I mean, not very much research has been done into how children actually learn how to walk. Uh, that was really fascinating to me and surprising. I, I talked with this uh, researcher, Karen Adolph, Dr. Karen Adolph, who teaches at New York University, and she runs the Infant Research Lab, where she just studies how infants learn to walk. And she does study infants all over the world. So she has these fascinating presentations um, from different cultures about how they te- how they uh, deal with mobility um, with children at different ages. And it's not all like Americans do it. So uh, it varies across the world. And one of the things that she really gets into is how little we understand about the variations. And I don't know why people didn't study this before, how varied um, our walking is, but they didn't. They would just put babies on these mats that could sort of track their steps and try to get them to walk in a straight line. Now, I'm a mother of two children, and anyone who has ever tried to walk with a young child uh, knows that they don't know anything about straight lines. They are all over the place all the time. It's part of how they learn and how their brains grow and also how they develop those that physical mobility. So she has this lab where they um, track infants walking naturally. Like they just, they have things to play with. They have caregivers and they watch and learn and they have sensors on them to see how it is that they walk. Uh, and interestingly, she teamed up with, um, his name is Peter Stone. He's a researcher, I think at the University of Texas, Austin, but I might have that mixed up. It's definitely in Texas. Um, and he's a robot researcher. And so he took her data and fed it to some of his robots who were playing in the RoboCup, which is a soccer game that robots play. <laughs> um, 
uh, every year to try to see how who can design a robot that has the most mobility or a team of robots that has the most mobility. And and they worked really well because they were working with this varied information that they were able to gather from the data of how babies ramble all over the place and fall down and stand up again and hit their heads and tumble over and stand up again and do it all over and over and over. I mean, it's been interesting to see how robotics has really been challenged by getting a robot to walk because there is so much going on and you write about this in your book. There's such a huge variety of various different things happening all at one time to allow us to walk, whether it's how we are dealing with gravity, it's what's going on with our inner ear, Mm -hmm. the joints, of course, balance, moving from one foot to another. I mean, there's a huge amount of very complex actions happening all at once that it seems that's been very challenging for robotics engineers to actually uh, basically simulate. It's it's really one of the things that got me fascinated in walking in the first place. Um, because when I first was watching my children do it, and then I happened to read something about robots walking and how they have never been able to make a bipedal robot that can just wander the world freely on its own. I was like, oh, that's weird. Um, and uh, and then I looked into it and I said, oh, it's because it's massively complex. So you're right. There's there's the balance. No other animal walks or sorry, mammal walks as we do on two feet. And if you think about when you take a step and you roll that foot forward and you've got one swung behind you, you are balanced on a very small point. And the fact that we can do that, it's kind of miraculous, really, especially when you look at paleoanthropology and evolution and nobody really knows how we got to this point or why, which is also another fascinating question. Um, And then there's also, like you said, the inner ear, the vestibular system, which uh, tells you where you are in space. And it also responds to the gravitational pull of the planet, which is something that most of us never think about, that we are every step we take, everything we do is on a planet that is moving at about a thousand miles per hour. And our body has to respond to that, even if we're not conscious of it. And the fact that it can respond to it and does is just, it's amazing to me that we are able to do that. And they've been able to see the impact then, of course, living without gravity from returning astronauts Mm -hmm. who have quite a hard time then walking on Earth. You know, it takes a while for them to really adjust because they've been away from gravity for so long. Yeah, um, there is a book I read. um, uh, I want to say the title because it's so uh, a little overdramatic, but it's from a NASA life sciences researcher. Uh, It's called Sitting Kills Moving Heels. (laughs) So it's a bit much. Um, But so she spent a long time working at NASA and working with returning astronauts. And they would come back and would not be able to walk in a straight line for like three steps. They would walk into doors. um, They would fall over. And uh, she likens it to being bedridden for a while. And I was thinking back to when my first child was born and I had an emergency C-section. So I was in a hospital bed for a few days. And even just that short amount of time walking across the room was actually quite hard for me. I had a hard time just getting my sense of balance and figuring out how far away the wall was. Um, Not for very long. I got over it pretty quickly. But can you imagine if you're in space for six months, um, like someone on the space station, Ooh, it takes a long, long time to get those senses back. And there's another sense, proprioception, which is 
uh, figuring out where your muscles are in speech is slightly different from the vestibular system, but it's used a lot. Um, like dancers and gymnasts have very highly honed proprioception because they have to know what their muscles can do and how far their knees can bend. Um, and, and you have strong sensors of that in your feet. So they can read the ground. So you talk about if you're walking outside and maybe you're moving from pavement to gravel or something's icy, your foot sends that information to your brain pretty quickly. And astronauts, they found, have a very dulled sense of proprioception. And they don't know whether you can lose it completely, but they theorize that it's possible. In terms of losing your ability around walking, of course, then we see that in the latter stage of life, you know, and as people age, of course, you know, joints have problems and and various different physical things. But there's been research now into the connection between loss of cognitive ability and our loss of being able to walk as well. There is. There's. There's been quite a bit of research on dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, there, there was a study of people over 70 years old, and they found if they walked 30 minutes a day, they, their risk of dementia and Alzheimer's was much lowered. And there's been a number of studies like that. Uh, kind of going from the other direction, like Parkinson's disease, one of the first signs of that is that your gait, the way that you walk, that your motion changes. And so then that's a signal that there's something going on in your brain that isn't interpreting the world in the way that you've been used to. Um, and, and so I think that we're just really starting to get into that. Scotland is actually kind of at the forefront of this research because they've started to take walking and the uh, health benefits of nature very, very seriously. But we're seeing that more here as well. I mean, we have a lot of walk with the doc programs right. where just the um, the notion of walking 30 minutes a few times a week can really make a big impact. And and I think getting away from the idea that you need to join a gym, you need a trainer, you need all this equipment. You can just take a walk if your neighborhood, you know, has that capacity, (laughs) because as we know, in a lot of urban areas, you don't even necessarily have sidewalks or walkable areas. But if you do have that, a walk can really increase your health outcomes. That's right. And and part of that is um, the socialization aspect. Uh, I think part of the reason Walk with a Doc is so successful is because walking with someone and talking with them is um, beneficial to your mental health. So not just to mention Alzheimer's, but depression, anxiety, loneliness is a really huge growing ec- epidemic um, all over the world. And being able to connect with somebody and have physical movement at the same time um, I haven't read this anywhere, but I think that it probably compounds the effects of both, uh, both moving and socializing. I think they add on to each other. What's the, the latest science into walking that you're excited about, whether it's robotics or, or some of these health and aging implications? Oh, that is a really, really good question. Um, I, I am actually very, very interested in the future of prosthetics. Um which is is not something that's talked about in walking a lot. We tend to think more about um, the urban planning aspect. And uh, universal design is incredibly important. So when you're designing a city, thinking first about can someone with a wheelchair get around, everybody benefits from that. Um, And then people have the most freedom and most mobility possible. Um, But there have been enormous strides in prosthetics, um, whether for hands or for legs. Um, There's some I didn't talk about in the book, like osseointegration, which is they studied how deer antlers grow to figure out how to plant a prosthetic directly into the bone, um, which helps a huge amount with pain and also allows a lot more sensory information to come up through that prosthetic. Um, And of course, it's great if everyone you know, like, like we do have two legs and can walk around without really thinking about it. But 
you know, I'm from Montana and I value nature and being in the wilderness a lot. And I think a lot about, well, what if I couldn't do that? And so the future of um, the ability to change that reality for some people is something that I'm very interested in. Because if I lost the ability to walk, if I didn't have that ability, I would miss um, going out into the wilderness and camping and things. And so I don't think the prosthetics are quite there because a lot of the more technical ones, like they can't get wet, they run out of battery power, they have a lot of drawbacks, especially when you're talking about something like hiking. But um, people keep working on them and and they're very enthusiastic about it and uh, just trying to provide the most mobility for people possible. I think that's a great thing to be doing. Well, Antonia Malchik's latest book is A Walking Life, Reclaiming Our Health and Our Freedom, One Step at a Time. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Hear an extended interview with Antonia Melchik on Wednesday, June 26th at 8.30 a.m. as part of Bike and Walk to Work Day coverage. We'll hear what makes a community walkable and the social impact of urban planning that has prioritized cars over pedestrians. In September this year, the German research icebreaker Polarstern will depart from Tromsø, Norway, and once it has reached its destination, will spend the next year drifting through the Arctic Ocean trapped in ice. A total of 600 people from 17 countries, who will be supplied by other icebreakers and aircraft, will participate in the expedition. The mission is spearheaded by the Alfred Wegener Institute in Germany. The expedition is known as Mosaic, or the Multidisciplinary Drifting Observatory for the Study of Arctic Climate. It has a strong contingent of climate scientists from the Boulder area, which is a center for climate research with such institutions as Ceres, the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences, and INSTAR, the Institute for Arctic and Alpine Research, to name just two. Today we hear from Dr. Detlev Helmig, an associate research professor at INSTAR. Dr. Helmig is a veteran of polar expeditions who is preparing to go as far as Tromsø to see off the polar stern as it sets out with the research project he has been working on. I asked Dr. Helmig about many of the alarming news stories we have seen in the press lately regarding polar ice melting much faster than climate scientists have predicted. While addressing these questions, Dr. Helmig lays out some of the motivation for such an unprecedented, extreme, complex, expensive, harsh, and even dangerous expedition. The easiest to explain is how current models have been mostly underpredicting the rate of sea ice loss. It's very remarkable. And it's something that we can evaluate and test really, really well because sea ice extent observations are really, really easy. We get those from satellites. You look down on Earth, you can tell 
there is sea ice or there's not, you can measure the surface area, you have a really, really good number. You know, to measure the extent of sea ice, just the spatial extent, um, we can do this from space really well. What we, what we struggle with, what's not quite as easy, is to um, uh, monitor the thickness of sea ice. So quite a bit harder. So being being there in real time helps with that tremendously. But still, this is you know this is an aspect of um, behavior of the Arctic that's relatively easy to grasp and to explain. And we have different platforms to to study it in different ways. Most models have been underpredicting the the rate and the loss of sea ice. Now, this campaign will go much, much, much further because we look at variables that we cannot easily observe from a distance, such as the um, chemical composition of the sea ice, the, the impurities in the sea ice, the um, biological activity, the microorganisms in the sea ice, the, the flow of gases through the sea ice, um, the exchange of gases to the sea ice. To do that, you have to be there. You have to be there at the time in the place to make those types of observations. And that's what this, this experiment will facilitate. And, and to go back to an earlier part of your question, why you know, have we been off in predictions how the Arctic is changing? It's a very obvious reason. Um, we haven't been there much. <laughs> we haven't been able to get there much. It's just logistically really, really difficult to access the Arctic, in particular sea ice, in particular sea ice. You know, coastal observations, and there's, there's been a fair amount of research done in Greenland, in northern Alaska, but on sea ice itself, like we've been wanting to do our part of the study for some 10, 12, 15 years, we haven't even tried because, you know, how do you possibly run the flux system on sea ice? You need power, you need shelter, um, you need safety. How do you do this? This is logistically so difficult. Um, so for those reasons, there, there are huge knowledge gaps on the behavior of the Arctic environment, particularly the ocean, the sea ice environment. And this is what this campaign will, will really focus on. Dr. Detlev Helmig next lays out uh, the plan for the Polar Stern and the Mosaic Expedition, though he is quick to note that on these types of missions, things do not always go according to plan. He touches on some of the science that will be done, including his own research project. Um, the experimental plan calls for, I think it's around two weeks journey from Tromsø in Norway north eastbound <laughs> uh, north of russia into an uh, area that has um, sea ice um, that's thick enough to support um, experimental infrastructure and once it's reached that point it will uh, turn the engines off and then allow itself to drift with the sea ice and that drifting will last for a year and um, will uh, cover on the order of um, 1,500 kilometers. Projections predict that this drifting will go close 
or over the North Pole <laughs> and eventually uh, end up on the um, east coast of Greenland. During that one year then, um, researchers will establish uh, a network of satellite sites that are supported from the vessel um, through power, through communication. And these satellite, satellite sites will support certain aspects of the um, research. So power will lines will go out from the polar stern. How far out? I think um, the reach is on the order of 700 meters, um, roughly, um, from what I've seen. Um, and there will be several of those, and some will support um, water studies with you know, holes being drilled in the sea ice and water sampling happening through these boreholes. Some will um, study the, the sea ice compositions, the microorganisms in the sea ice. Um, our study um, entails um, surface fluxes, so that's exchange of gases between the atmosphere and the sea ice. So we'll be working out of a facility that's been dubbed uh, Med City. So there'll be a, a small shelter that will have power, will be, be heated, and that will, that will accommodate instrumentation that we tailor towards um, observing the flow of gases. So the um, uptake of gases from the atmosphere to the sea ice as well as the release of other gases of interest from the sea ice to the atmosphere. And these um, cycles may change, you know, as, as we're going through a full year from light to darkness, complete darkness, to spring and summer. Um, the change in environmental conditions, it's just dramatic. You know, the, the light, the temperature, the winds, the, the, the wetness of the sea ice, the, the biology in the sea ice, the, the transport of gases through the sea ice, the, the, the composition of the ocean border underneath the sea ice. There's, there's so many variables that change that we've never been able to observe in, in real time at the location. You know, we have some, some assumptions, some projections and so this will give us really a first-time unique opportunity to to test our uh, hypothesis, our our understanding of how this um, system behaves as a, as a whole. As it happens, there are way more scientists eager to go on the expedition than berths available on the polar stern. I asked Dr. Helmig to explain what drives such individuals to compete for a two-month stint trapped in Arctic ice, especially the ones in wintertime when the North Pole is in continual darkness. When we go out there to do this research, the science, it's fascinating um, to see the, the, the passion and everybody who's out there, the, the, the motivation, the excitement of being there, doing this work, and doing exploration. You know, we, if, you, if you read these, um, the literature on the early exploration in Antarctica, um, you know, race to the poles, you just wonder how in the hell did people, why would they do this for so much hardship, so much misery? for so long away from family and friends and your iPhone. <laughs> um, but there's something in our scientists that just drives us forward. And to do this in an environment such as the deep Arctic in a, in a situation where we 
join forces with, with colleagues we didn't know very well previously, um, it's fascinating. You know, we share a common goal. We share a vision. We share, share beliefs. And um, we develop new collaborations, new friends, and we discover things we never even imagined before they would be there. Um, it's the beauty of science. It's the beauty of being a researcher. That was Dr. Detlev Helmig, Associate Research Professor at INSTAR, the Institute for Arctic and Alpine Research. The German icebreaker Polar Stern will head into the Arctic ice from Tromsø, Norway, this September. Information on the Mosaic Expedition can be found easily online at www.mosaic-expedition.org or just search for Mosaic Expedition. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Chip Randitz. Additional contributions by Maeve Conran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Chip Granditz.